on this episode of the Oklahoma Breakdown with Iker and Layman, presented by Riverwind Casino. We bring you the latest OU football updates from spring practice, and we break down OU's inside linebackers. Then ESPN college basketball analyst Chris Spatola joins us to preview the Final Four, and we finish up giving you our winners and losers of the week. Please download and subscribe to the podcast, rate it five stars, and write us a good review. Follow the show on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Just search Oklahoma Breakdown on any of those, and you'll find us. All right? Our man Michael Hosty will kick this thing off. It's time for the Oklahoma Breakdown. It's a beautiful Thursday, March 31st, and you're listening to the Oklahoma Breakdown with Iker and Lehman, presented by Riverwind Casino. Riverwind is Oklahoma City's premier casino experience, and your health and safety are Riverwind's number one priorities. There are so many reasons why Riverwind is consistently voted OKC's number one casino, but it all starts with their amazing variety of gaming thrills and excitement. Riverwind's beautiful, award-winning environment plays host to more than 2,800 of the latest electronic games with a huge selection of table games, including Blackjack, Blackjack Match, Roulette, and Teddy's favorite, Craps. No matter what your game, Riverwind has it in spades and hearts. And Riverwind will be featuring live music and local food trucks every month starting in May for the Beats and Bites Festival. Performers include the Randy Rogers Band and Scotty McCreary. If you need help finding your way, just visit Riverwind.com. Riverwind Casino, simply the best. Now recording this Wednesday night, please leave us a five-star review and a nice comment while you're at it. Also, if you'd like to sponsor the podcast, you can email us at the Oklahoma Breakdown at gmail.com. How are we doing, Ted? Fantastic. I cannot complain. Um... Well, I can complain. The weather today was crap. Um, other than that, everything else is great. Yeah, it was beautiful, and then it sucked. So, But uh, <laughs> so is life living in the state of Oklahoma. I, I will – one programming note. So this episode, we're talking inside linebackers. We're talking the latest updates we're hearing from OU Spring Practice. We've got Chris Spatola, who is a college basketball analyst for ESPN, to preview the Final Four. Also, this, this guy named Mike Shushevsky is, is his father-in-law, so he, he knows a thing or two about what's going down this weekend. So we'll have a fun, fun interview with Chris, but our episode on Sunday night slash Monday morning, we're going to do – it's going to be half – Q&A. So we've been asking you guys to submit your questions. We have selected some of those questions. We will answer some of those. And then Jared Folliwell from Kings of Leon. They are nominated for a Grammy on Sunday. 
I will be going to the Grammys. So it's oh. going to be, yeah. So, but we're going to record it before because, you know, like if they don't win, then it's one of those things where it's like, oh, the man. If they do win, are you going to be one of the random guys in the back on stage that are standing there with arms around everyone? I, I will not be, but you'll be hearing <laughs> me yell. That's for damn sure. So uh, you could go up there and slap someone. Let's make this thing entertaining. Come on. I could. You're right. I could. I now I feel like I will be punished. unlike Will Smith, <laughs> yes. but yes. I, so we're, we're going to record an interview with Jared uh, talking OU football. Cause he's a huge OU football fan. And then just talking about what it's like getting nominated for a Grammy, what it's like winning one. Cause they've won several. I don't, I don't know. It's going to be an interesting, interesting conversation. Awesome. Looking forward to it. All right. OU football stuff. Let's get right into it. Sooners practiced Monday. They practiced Wednesday, and they will be back on the practice field on Friday. I, I think this is where we have to start. Brent Venables has an open microphone at practice now. Open which night. He like and it's loud from what I understand. So I feel like no one is safe. He's got an open microphone to say what he pleases. Ted, this seems, this seems less than ideal for some of the players. It, it's, it's, it's fascinating because for the most part, it's used as a transition from drill to drill tool, a, um, maybe calling out different, like the first defense, the second team defense, the third team offense, like some of those sit like calling out situations in practice. That's where you get 90% of the use. The other 10% <laughs> tends to be, um, uh, uh, corrections offered to players. <laughs> that is, that is one way to say that he screams at them in into the microphone. <laughs> oh, that's great. I'm telling you, man, I, I have, you know, and, and I obviously spent a lot of time in practice with Brent Venables in a very personal, like no further than like uh, five feet from him at all times. And this is this is different, man. He is during the entire practice. There is I'm I'm not exaggerating whenever I say there's not one second that he's not coaching. He may be with backers one second, tight ends the next, safeties, D line, O line. It's constant move to move to move. He's talking to a trainer. He's talking to uh, an analyst, he's, it's, it's nonstop. It does not stop the entire time. He's not hanging around the middle of the field, spinning his whistle on his finger. He is 1000% engaged with what's happening out there. Yeah. And the other coaches and all the players, like they have to match that level of intensity and focus and energy. And it kind of just lifts the energy level of the entire group, because you're like, Oh my gosh, how's this guy doing this? It's, it's, it's interesting for sure. Which is funny. You brought that point up. You're right. Because even coaches are not safe from the microphone. 
<laughs> yes, correct. If if you don't have the proper amount of guys on the field, if you don't have the right guy in, yes, you will you will hear from the microphone. <laughs> the voice of God. Okay, so on Wednesday, they practice inside the stadium, which it's always it's always fun to get a practice in there on Owen Field and just from everything I've been told, I mean, the physicality and intensity, man, it isn't slowing down at all. If anything, it's it's ramping up. So basically, on Wednesday, they scrimmaged, but a lot of what they did was, was situational football, which I, I'm a big fan of the format that they used because anytime, anytime you go straight, from stretch lines to a competitive goal line period. Like it's going to be a practice, Ted. <laughs> it is. Yeah. Oh boy. It, it, it was uh let's go ahead and ramp this thing up right away and set the tone for what practice is, is going to look like. And it was physical man. And it, here's the thing. We're what four or five practices in to spring. You got a new offense, you got a new defense, you've got uh, new new personnel, whether it's transfer guys or early arrivals. There's a lot of new out there. So the mistakes are everywhere. The um right the the like the plays on field, there's some sloppiness there. Now there is no sloppiness to to practice and how that is run. Everything when it comes to that is super sharp. But, you know, there's a lot of new. But what I love is the overall feel of what's going on out there. There's no, like, everyone is so locked in. And I don't know, like, well, I know the reasoning is because, your head coach is running around out there with such an edge in every single drill that you better match that or you're going to get called out or you're going to stick out like a sore thumb. So just the, the overall, I I haven't been around that really intense, like just the feeling of, of a practice in a long time. It was, it was, it was different to say. Yeah. So they went full contact Wednesday. And I'm not talking about like go and wrap a guy up and the the refs blow the whistles. No, I'm talking about tackling to the ground in spring practice, all practice long. And, you know, start with the goal line period, right? Which is one hell of a way to get a practice started. But then, you know, throughout the practice, you know, they they did did some things where it's it's a couple of sets where the offense is just trying to drive the football, but then this staff they they are really diving into the situational work and you know third and long, you know one of the sets third and five, another like third and three, and the offense has two plays to get a get a first down. It's up to the defense to stop them in the in those situations, and they did all of that while taking everyone to the ground like actual football. And that's, I mean, you just don't see a ton of that. That's, that's kind of, I don't know if it's old school quite yet, but that is, that's good work. I know that. 
no, it's it's great work. And it wasn't just the the team periods. Individual, <laughs> buddy, uh, on the defensive side, they were getting it in. Uh, just tackling, like, just positional tackling drills and stuff like that on the defensive side. They were getting it in. It was a very throwback physical practice. It was awesome. Honestly, it was great. And, and I know some fans have seen the pictures from the practice. Maybe the best part about it, it, whether you're on offense or on, you're on defense, everything's a competition, right? They, they are, they are making everything a competition between whatever offense and whatever defense, whether it's first string, second string, the young guys, it is a constant competition. And if you lose the situation, you have to do push-ups with Coach Venables, which is just, I mean, who does that? It's so, it's so funny. It's like, but I, I do love that they are, they are creating that sense of competition with everything they do on the practice field. I, I am a firm believer that that is how you elevate the level of a team. And, man, it didn't take them long because they, they've been doing this you know, since they got on the field, but now it, it seems like it's just ramp ramping up to a new, you know, kind of to a higher and higher level every time they take the practice field. Nope. You are exactly right. It is, um, it, it was, it was refreshing, man. It was great to see. It really was. Uh, I, you know, like again, I wasn't blown away by, execution or anything like that which you should be your five practices in man it's tough it's, there's there's a lot of coaching going on out there trying to get get guys right and you've thrown a lot at them in a very short amount of time that totally totally expected but like the energy the physicality all of that stuff was just top notch excellent and if you if you establish that foundation of that being the expectation of how practice is, you're in a really good spot moving forward. You're in a really yes. good spot moving forward. Okay, latest on the OU spring game. Just a reminder, Brent Venables wants you to pack the palace. It's April 23rd. So if you don't have your tickets, yeah, you, I'm talking to you. Make sure you buy them and be there. April 23rd spring game. But... Brent, Brent Vittable said that the format for the spring game still hasn't been decided and that it's going to depend on how spring ball goes and will be determined by depth and development and, and some of these other things. But I, I really just kind of interpret that as being like, hey, we're, we're getting really physical practices and let's see, let's see how banged up guys get, right? And obviously they're, they're being smart. I'm not trying to make it sound like they're out there doing dumb stuff. They're, they're not doing that, but spring ball is like guy, guys get beat up, guys get banged up, you know, miss a week here, a week there. And I, I think it's kind of just hard to predict what your numbers are going to be for the spring game. And I assume that's why he's kind of holding off on announcing any sort of format, just in case, you know, they have some guys go down and then maybe you don't have the numbers you want to have to, to have the type of spring game you want to have. I will say this. From from what practice is like, that spring game is going to be competitive as hell. One way or another. 
and he's going to want to see how guys respond in that atmosphere. And he's not asking the OU fan base to show up and pack the palace for nothing. Like he, he wants to do something that ex, that's excited. That's exciting for the fans, but you got to be smart. And this is that time in spring ball. You know, you're, you're a third of the way through where, you know, guys start missing a couple practices for whatever reason. So we'll see, but I'm not even sure what format I would want it to be. I don't even know. Um, an hour of short yardage and goal line. That's what I would like to see. <laughs> no, I, I'll say this. Like, I don't care what the format is. The OU fans need to come watch this team work. Because I'm telling you, it is a totally different feeling to – it just has a different energy to it, if that makes any sense. Um, and and not, to, not to discredit what, what the previous staff did, this is just like – this is more of like what I envision it being like, right? It is a very, very – on edge type of atmosphere and you know defensively you're going to see some really interesting stuff you're going to see some new guys playing some new roles offensively you're going to see um i'm I'm not going to say a totally different offense but a totally different offense that has some really cool aspects to it and there's so there's so much zone it makes me so happy it's it's definitely 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 worth coming out and and seeing what this team is going to have to offer. And again, I I don't expect it because of all the new stuff and it's a long time from now, but I don't expect it to be a totally polished product, but there it it'll, it'll be fun. It's going to be yeah. fun no matter they'll, what it is. They'll come up, they'll come up with something creative. Okay, other spring game news. The Baker Mayfield statue unveiling will be at halftime of the spring game instead of after the game. Personally, I like the change, right? You get, get the guys some water, get them a little breather, and then stadium because it's going to be packed, right? Right? It's going to be packed. Yep. Stadium gets to erupt at halftime and show their appreciation for quite possibly the most beloved player in OU history. I, I like it. I I do too. Now, can you cover some logistics for me? Is this going to be like there's a camera crew outside whenever they pull the the covering off the statue and we cheer from inside the stadium on the jumbotron, and then Baker comes out like how how do you unveil the statue at halftime considering it's a several ton brass block that cannot make it inside the stadium? I, I have been wondering that as well. So I don't know if there's some sort of construction equipment. They pre-staging this thing inside the stadium yes, via crane they, or something? They will play the first half of the spring game with the statue in the middle of the field, and you have to avoid it. If you touch the statue, <laughs> it's a turnover. Them's the rules. No, but Batting another level. Yeah, that, that's how they're going to make it entertaining and fun. No. That's a really good question, and I'm trying to remember what they did for Bradford's statue. 
I don't know. I don't remember. I don't think it bad. was a I don't think it was a spring game thing, was it? Yeah, but then 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 again, Bradford and Baker, very two very different human beings, right? <laughs> Bradford watched it via satellite link in, from Montana, I think, whenever they unveiled his statue. Yeah. So <laughs> I think that okay, let's say it is it is unveiled outside of the stadium. They show it on the Jumbotron. Then does he have to come running into the stadium with a big OU flag? That's and what plant, they have to do, right? Yeah. Come in and then plant the flag. Yes. I don't know. I think it's going to be great. Baker is um, maybe the most beloved sooner. I I don't know. I say of all time. Uh, that's what that's what I times. tell people. I, yeah, he's he's great. And Bosworth and Baker. He's a hell of a showman too, man. He's a hell of a showman and. I'm sure he'll be there doing his thing and, and people be eating it up. I, I'm guessing the statue. Here's my final guess. Statue is outside the stadium. He is at midfield. They unveil said statue on the jumbotron. He's in the middle of the field. So everyone's cheering for him. Then he is handed a flag. He will then run around the entire field and the place will go crazy. That's my prediction. Is he going to be at midfield appearing to be dipped in bronze? Is like so he could recreate the pose? That I love the I love the creativity you're going with. So he he is actually a replica of the statue. Like he he gets some body paint. Yeah. Like a are you trying to get him canceled? (laughs) Yeah, I guess that is a bad idea. That's a bad idea. Yeah. Okay, one last thing. Kale Gundy, he made some headlines with the statement, caused a bit of a reaction, uh, something he said after practice in media availability on Wednesday. And and all he said was that Jeff Levy is the most well-rounded offensive mind he's been around, essentially, and that he's polished in all areas. Now, a lot of people saw that statement and they're like, oh, this is some shot at Lincoln Riley. Right, right before he said that, he talked about how, how great Lincoln was as an offensive mind, how creative he was, how he's one of the most creative guys he's ever been around. But this is, this is the type of stuff we keep hearing about Jeff Levy. I mean, from everyone I talk to up there, and I, I don't know Jeff the way that you know Jeff, but everyone in that building talks to me about how he is going to be a star in college football coaching. So I, I don't think Kale Gundy said this as any sort of slight to Lincoln Riley or to anyone else. Cause remember, remember the offensive minds that Kale Gundy has worked with, right? We're talking Mike Leach, Josh Heupel, Kevin Wilson, Lincoln Riley, like, you know, Mark Mangino, like all these people that he's worked with, for him to say that about Jeff Levy, like I, I don't think Kale Gundy comes out and says something like that without thinking about it. Like he he's a guy that means what he says. So when I heard that, I was like, damn, that's that's a hell of a statement coming from Kale. Yeah. Well, let's see. Levy is I'm trying to think how old he is. So he's probably I think he's 38. I was about to say he's probably two or three years younger than me. I, 
he he has the feeling of a very young guy, but I bet he's been coaching for longer than Lincoln or the same amount of time as Lincoln. And during that time, he's coached running backs. He's coached wide receivers. He's coached quarterbacks. He played offensive line. He, it, it's no shock that he's as well-rounded as he is. He's he's had responsibilities in every single role offensively, and you know he's 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 coached in some big games. He's coached under some some really good coaches. So yeah, I, if Kel says it, I don't think he's just saying it to to prop up Jeff Lebby. I don't I don't think there's any need to do any of that. Uh, he's obviously well qualified for the position and I've heard nothing different from anyone else that's ever worked with him. Right. And I'll say this about kale. He is, he is not one to blow smoke. No, usually he is. He's him and his brother have that in common. I'll say they are, they're rather honest and, and and pretty, pretty candid people. Well, Hey, it's, why not be whenever you, I mean, what are you going to do at this point? It's like one of those people it's like, what are you going to do? Fire me. I've been here for like 25 years, you know, no, it's whatever. No, he's, he says, calls it how it is. And, um, but that is, that's a, that's a big statement. That's a big endorsement from, from Kel Gundy, but it mirrors everything else that I've heard from, from not only everyone up there on the current staff, but anyone that's worked with him previously. Yeah. All right. Let's break down some inside linebackers. You know anything about those guys? I don't know. Let's see. But first, the only place to stop when you're road tripping is Love's Travel Stops. Love's has over 560 locations in 41 states offering 24-hour access to clean and safe places. Whatever your road trip needs are, Love's has it. Fuel, fresh food, all the snacks and drinks, including, yes, my favorite, java amore that coffee is fantastic loves also has you covered if you forget your phone charger or headphones they've expanded their mobile to go zone so you can grab any of that stuff there make sure you down the loves download the loves connect app for exclusive offers from today's most popular brands the loves connect app also includes a route planner and store locator when you see that red neon heart on the highway stop in and say hi at loves travel stops for a full list of what loves has to offer Visit loves.com. Opolis Clothing is the exclusive home for all of our Oklahoma Breakdown merchandise. If you want to live your life in buttery, soft comfort, go to opolisclothing.com. That's O-P-O-L-I-S clothing.com. Use our promo code TED, T-E-D, for 10% off your entire order. You still get a discount on all of the OU and OKC Thunder gear and softball gear as well. Yeah. That's Use our promo code TED for 10% off. Buttery soft and 10% off. All right, let's talk some inside linebackers. Ted Roof and Brent Venables kind of, it seems like they're kind of tag, tag teaming this group of players, but Roof is, he, he's the inside backers coach, even though everyone's seen some of these videos uh, of BV coaching up those linebackers. He is, he is detailed to say the least, but let, let's start with the old man in the group. 
six foot, 224 pound Deshaun White. I think he made a very smart decision coming back. And the guy's played a lot of football. He's played a lot of football and he's played some stretches of good football. Now it's time for him to put it all together. And he he's not the most talented guy in this inside backer room, but he's certainly the most experienced and that matters. So I, I think Deshaun is hoping that Roof and BV take him to another level as a player. And it's, it's their job to get him to that next level. And it, it sounds like he's, he's off to a good start here in the spring. Yeah, I think, you know, I think Deshaun is, he's in a spot here to where I think he's got, I, I think he's got some really good opportunity this year. And I'll just tell you right now, Brent Venables as a linebacker coach, as a defensive coordinator, and I guarantee you as a head coach, is going to demand a whole lot from Deshaun White as the most experienced player in that in that huddle or in that in that position group. And it's it's gonna be up to him to how he answers that call. You know, it, it's it's a clean slate. And if you feel like I'm I'm gonna be able to to go into this this room now and kind of lean on my lean on my uh experience and my standing so to speak as as a senior it's just not going to work you have to go above and beyond and i know there's always a i mean that just gets thrown around right we need everyone to go above and beyond well if everyone's going above and beyond then we're all kind of doing the same thing like there's going to be an expectation for him and it's going to be tough to meet that expectation and it's going to be way more than just football. It's holding the rest of that, that group accountable. It's leading in the proper way. It's, it's, you know, grabbing uh, one of the younger guys during practice and maybe setting things straight. I mean, there's going to be a lot demanded of Deshaun White outside of just football. And by the way, you're going to have to be the standard at the football part too. You need to be the best in the drills. You need to be the the best at, at getting lined up, at calling out and communicating, at uh, you know, getting safeties into the right position, getting the defensive line to to get where they're supposed to be. It's a big role, and it's a big role whenever you're learning the defense like everyone else is. But that's the expectation with Deshaun White right now because I feel like just speaking as a whole not just linebacker-wise, but defensively. And I feel like it's kind of been this way to some degree for a while. It's a bit of a leaderless army. I don't know who the guy is. And the guy's not always the guy that had three sacks in the game, right? But every team, you need to know who the guy is. And I feel like right now it's kind of a, like, we're waiting on that person to arrive on the defensive side to start, you know, because the coaches can do it nonstop. They can, they can 
talk about the standard. They can try and get everyone uh, up to speed and yell and cuss and do all of those things. But it's never going to mean as much as whenever it comes from one of the, the players on the team, unprovoked from a coach. Whenever a player all of a sudden starts to feel ownership over the team and feel responsible for what practice looks like and games look like. And that's what I'm waiting on from Deshaun White. And he's capable of that, right? I, I think he is. He's capable of that, but it not to we're going to make some Clemson comparisons, right? Because I, I think it's only natural with with BV's time there. But James Skalski was not the best player on that defense, right? No one would tell you he was, but everyone knew he was the leader of that defense. Now, would you like to have seen a, a few less targeting calls? Sure. <laughs> but can Deshaun White be the James Skalski? Like, I think he's more than capable of being that. But like you said, he's, he's going to have to separate himself. One guy who has openly talked about wanting to embrace more of a leadership role over the last couple of weeks is Danny Stutzman. And Stutzman right now, he looks exactly how you want an inside backer to look. 6'3", 235, and can absolutely fly. But he, he has to take on this new role. He wants to be a leader, but really in order to be a leader, like he's talking about, he's got to be more consistent. He's got to make plays. And he's got all the talent in the world to do that. And it feels like this is the time of the year where he starts to, to make a big jump as a player right? Because we, we saw him on the field last year. Who knows what would have happened if he wouldn't have had the injury, but he, he makes, he needs to make a big jump and that starts in spring practice. Yeah, there, there's no doubt about that. And you know, it's interesting whenever you, we got to remember Stutzman, he still hasn't even been on campus for a year. Remember he didn't get here. I, I think his first day at OU was the champion barbecue like he got there either that day or maybe a day or two before that and that was in june so he's still incredibly young so i think he's got a fantastic jump and you've got to keep that you know in consideration whenever you're talking about uh, like he's he's got plenty of time tons of football ahead of him um i think that I think Stutzman right now is swimming a bit with the learning a new defense. Just learned one over the last nine months. Now you're getting a whole new playbook thrown at you. Whole different language. Whole different set of drills and all of that stuff. It's a lot to process. I think, I think that's going on. I think the fact that the head coach has a microphone and is critiquing you on the microphone or is running over there to coach you up 
like individually and demanding more, like coaching you in a very demanding fashion. I think it's, and he was coached. It's not like he was coached softly before. It's just different when it's the head coach. It just brings a whole new level of, of like anxiety with it. So I think he's, I think he's swimming in that moment a little bit right now, but here's the thing. Got great length. He's got plenty of size. He's got plenty of speed. He's a smart kid. He's, he's liked and respected by his teammates. He, again, hasn't been on campus a year. He's got a great jump on being an outstanding linebacker. I don't expect it to all happen this spring. I think this is going to be a rough spring. But I think, I think probably by the middle of this coming season, college football is going to start, like people say, slowing down. Like he's, It's going to start to click for him, I think. Yeah, he's got he, – he's certainly got all the tools. And like, like you said, it it is important, I think, that he appears to be one of the most well-liked guys on the team. Mm-hmm. So that that's also – like I think all that stuff matters as well. It does. But you've got to you've got to bridge the gap between being one of the most liked guys on the team and also being perhaps the biggest asshole on the team, right? Uh, you've got to be able to to be both if if you want to claim that that real top spot there and and really take ownership out of everything that's going on. And you can do both. Lots of guys do it. Yeah, you did it. Well. I don't know. I don't know that I was ever really liked. <laughs> <laughs> Honesty is important. Honesty is important. All right. David Aguebu. Uh, he's still massive. Uh, 6'4", 250 right now. And he's still playing inside linebacker. Now, love his physicality. Uh, I think the the new staff is is very intrigued by what he can develop into as an inside backer. You and I, we had talked about, okay, is is he a guy they're going to move around and try some different things with? I wouldn't be surprised if that happens in kind of the back half of spring ball. You know, we'll, we'll see. But as of right now, he's he's still a gigantic inside linebacker. He's looking good. Looks fantastic in a jersey still. He, he looks great. I think you'll like this comparison. I compare Aguebu to a trebuchet. The <laughs> medieval weapon? The medieval weapon. Trebuchet is a, a weapon, obviously, that delivers an incredible amount of force whenever it arrives on target. But before it ever arrives on target, you got to get a bunch of people that a horse, horses in an army has to walk it out there, has to put it in place. Then some guys chisel a rock or find a stone somewhere, carry it over there. Then it takes a team to load the trebuchet into position. Then another group of guys 
load the rock into the trebuchet. And then finally, someone pulls the ripcord or the trigger or whatever, and you sling the huge stone near the target. You didn't hit it, so we need to readjust the trebuchet and get it positioned just right. Then go find a stone that he is a player that I feel like it has to go faster. I need to get lined up faster. I need to see it faster. I need to trigger faster, right? Whenever he arrives, he arrives with punch and physicality, and he's a devastating inside backer. All right, we got to turn him into like uh, a bazooka or something instead of a trebuchet to where it's quick, it's fast, it strikes on target, and, you know, very easily deployed. It just, it all takes too long for him right now. And I think he can get there. I think um, maybe a new perspective, coaching, and maybe some higher demands. I think he can get there. I, I, he's got, he needs to play lower. He's six, four. It's hard. I mean, that's one of the problems with, that's why when people talk about linebackers being too, too small at like five eleven. I almost prefer a five eleven linebacker. He's in a, it's easier to play in a bent knee position where you're low and you've got great leverage. Now the ultimate is whenever you get a guy that's six, four, 255 pounds, that can play low, that can see it, that can trigger, that can also when you're six four, you got long legs, big feet, and you know you're kind of, you know you're not super quick, and it's hard to stay square sometimes. If if you have to turn and run, you, it's hard to get back square to the line of scrimmage. Like there's a lot of things that need work with him, but when he arrives, he arrives with physicality and with punch. If he can figure out those other things he can be an outstanding linebacker. And I do think that mentally there's, I think it took him a long time to get up to speed in the last defense. And I think it's going to take some time in this defense. I think it'll be quicker, but he needs to have a total understanding about everything that's asked of him schematically before he's ever going to be able to unleash his athleticism. And I, I think that's where his, his main focus needs to be is I have got to get to a position where I'm no longer thinking. It has to be fluent. I have to be able to play and have to be able to, you know, to, to really show all the gifts that I have. Because right now, because of he, he's slow in diagnosing and, and getting lined up and seeing the formation, he doesn't play like he's 6'4", 250 plus pounds and, and runs a, you know, a, a four, six or faster. He's, it doesn't, he doesn't play that way right now consistently, but I think he can get there. He is currently a trebuchet. You would like for him to be a bazooka <laughs> or something. Yes. Yeah. Something, something that we can deploy quicker. We'll see. Got it. Sounds, sounds like he, Sounds like he just like, I, I feel like this entire inside backer room, like it's, it's not an easy defense and BV and Ted roof are going to put a lot on this group. Okay. One guy that 
is a little shorter, so maybe to your liking, Ted. Shane Witter, uh, six foot, up to 216 pounds. Like, well, he's not the biggest guy in the world, but he can absolutely fly. He's got, he's got an edge to him that you and I both like. It's, it's all about can he and I, he he's not the physically imposing guy that Aguebu is, but I feel like some of their issues are similar, and that is seeing it clearly, and once they see it clearly, going and making plays. Mm-hmm. Now, when this guy saw it clearly last year, boy, he can he can go, but I feel like similarly to similarly to Aguebu, like he's got to take that step when it comes to the the full understanding of the defense. Now the whole group does, but that was that was certainly one of his issues last year. No doubt about it. No doubt about it. Um I kind of just I I I watched the way that he was kind of carrying himself and and went from drill to drill and the way he took the field whenever he was out there. I kind of like what I see from him just just like attitude wise and he looked like he was locked in. Right. Um, I, he's, he's got a ton of talents. He is incredibly fast. Um, he is, he's one of those guys that is a quick twitch and he can trigger what I would say negatives are. He plays like a sprinter and linebacker. You don't really play as a sprinter. I, I don't, Straight line speed is great, but I don't necessarily need straight line speed. I need a guy that can start in a stance, uh, take two steps up on play action, turn his hips on an angle, fly on a 45-degree out to his zone while keeping vision on the quarterback and keeping vision on the route progression that's happening behind him, get the hips back square to the line of scrimmage, then put a toe in the ground, drive the check down whenever it's thrown, then come to speed or come to balance and get yourself back under control again, shuffle to the side and make a physical tackle. It's got to be all that fast, super fast feet, super fast hips. It's not just how much can I open my stride up and run. That rarely happens. you got to be able to play fast and move in those type of uh, those movements and stay quick and stay square and stay low. And I think he's capable of that, but right now he plays like a sprinter. Overruns things a lot, you know, gets because there's a difference between running really fast and then when you start to lift like you're a sprinter that just got out of your drive face and now you're going to your full speed run. Like he plays in that full speed run too much instead of that, you know. You're going full speed, but you don't ever start to lift. Does that make sense? And open up your stride. Yeah. Got to be more of a tight, like your feet need to be super active instead of like opening up the straight line speed. And I, again, though, like, here's the thing. And I don't mean to be critical on all these guys, because I think they all, everyone that we've talked about has incredible talents and has the potential to be really, really good. But, you know, I just want to be honest about some of the things I, I feel like they need to work on. None of these things are like are traits that are not totally fixable. All of them are. All of them are. 
Okay, then we've got we've got what I'll call the new guys. So you've got TD Roof who has transferred in. Then you've got the freshman, uh, Jaron Canick, Kobe McKenzie, and Kip Lewis. I I just don't it feels like the room's crowded, right? Like I, I think that maybe Canick, if any of the freshmen are gonna get on the field, uh, the sense seems to be that it would be Canick. Now clearly McKenzie. And the kid's got size, checking in at 6'2", 238. Kip Lewis, only weighing 196 pounds, so clearly needs to add to that frame. But uh, of these kind of new guys, at at this point in spring ball, like are, are any of these guys kind of factoring in in a big way? T.D. Roof, 100%. If T.D. Roof plays like a linebacker's son, like a linebacker and linebacker coach's son. He has a really low stance. He plays with a tremendous pad level. He's got really good hips. He always ends up square to the line of scrimmage. He's got good punch with his hands and good, good hand placement. Problem is he's real small, Um, but he is technically proficient at linebacker. And, and it really stands out. He looks great whenever he plays. Um, so I do think that, you know, because of all of those things, he may be a guy that ends up factoring in in some shape or another. Um, Kanick is incredibly gifted as an athlete, but he looks like a kid that just left rural Kansas and is all of a sudden playing linebacker at the University of Oklahoma trying to learn a defense. Like, it's a lot right now. But you see the flashes of athleticism. He's fast, and he's got some pretty good punch uh, whenever he does, when he is able to square square up and make a play, make a tackle. I think Kip Lewis and Kobe McKenzie are probably going to be works in progress. Um I, I would I would be shocked if I saw either one of those guys factor in in a major way in in the next year. I think Kobe's got some really good size, but I think he needs I think he really needs to be develop some strength to be stronger. I think he needs to develop more speed. I think he needs to to really work on footwork and active feet and you know, playing in a, in a bent need position and just like locking in, like, and, and really focusing on all of those things while still playing at uh, at really fast speed. So I think with Kobe McKenzie and Kip Lewis, it's probably going to be some extended development for those guys. Yeah. Which, which isn't a bad thing. It's what Venables ultimately wants. He does not want to play young guys. Yeah, and I think that is, like, with the way the recruiting goes now, it's like a kid that's a highly recruited kid, like, it's it's a failure if he's not on the field as a true freshman. Like That isn't – that's not how it works at the best programs for the most part. Now, do you have an occasional guy? Yeah, usually, but usually it's at a skill position, like running back or wide receiver or corner. Yep. Like, your linemen, your linebackers, your tight ends, like, it it takes a while to get built into a grown man to play play in the box at 99, this level. Yeah, ninety nine percent of the time, 
and maybe even 100% of the time. We want our juniors and seniors playing other people's five-star freshmen. That's what we want. We want older players playing against someone else's freshmen that have to play freshmen whenever they show up because they don't have any other guys. We want to play against freshmen. We don't want to play freshmen on our team. Right? You want those guys to be developed physically, mentally, understand the game before they're out there. That's like you need like a conveyor of junior seniors out, junior seniors in. Like that's ultimately what you want to to really have a sharp, smart, detailed, disciplined football team. Yeah, and I just feel like some people because recruiting's covered so well and we get so excited about the kids that are coming in. It's like, why is he not on the field? Why is he not on the field? It's like, well, because Deshaun White's been here for five years. He's five years older than him. Like, you you know what I mean? And like, it's, I, I just think that it's always good to remind the fan base that it's not the end of the end of the world if the high four-star freshman isn't on the field right away. That's yeah. actually a good thing. But he's fast. Well, he's fast, but he doesn't know where the starting line is, and he doesn't know where the finish – he doesn't even know what the race is, actually. Right? <laughs> that's, that's what's going on. <laughs> yeah, but it's, it, it's an exciting group, though. I'll say a lot of talent, some experience, uh, guys that definitely, you know, from everything I'm hearing, want to get better, and they're embracing – the grind that the new staff uh, on the defensive side ha has brought. So I think everyone in this group without exception can be an outstanding linebacker, but it's not going to happen with all of them. It's just not, that's the nature of how this thing goes, right? We see a group of, of guys in a position room and maybe there's 10 or 12 of them. Of those 10 or 12, at a given time, you may have two or three guys that are legitimate Division One, Power 5, college football playoff type of studs. Like, it's just, it's not going to happen with everyone. Some guys are never going to lock in and the talent is, is going to be wasted, so to speak. Other guys are going to have injuries. Uh, other guys are, are you know, maybe you're going to fall behind physically a little bit and not develop like we thought they would. I mean, it is not a 100% deal with everyone. There's, there's going to be guys that fall by the wayside, but out of this group, there will emerge uh, two, three guys that are legitimate top-end linebackers in college football. That's my opinion. Yeah. All right, let's get to call your shot. We asked you guys, what inside linebacker are you most excited about? Our buddy Carson Cunningham chimed okay. in and said, Canick is giving me serious Teddy Lehman vibes. Well, if by that you mean as a freshman, he's running around out there like a chicken with his head cut off, has no idea where he's going confused why he's getting screamed at by uh brent venables yeah there's a ton of similarities there right now yeah <laughs> really I'll, fast I'll, I'll say this he is which like 
all of these guys, I would say, frankly, are light years ahead of where I was at that point. And, you know, part of it is a lot of guys are coached way better now these days. There's way more access to information out there. Um, you know, the, a lot of these guys are showing up early, like Stutzman's still a, a, a freshman, but you know, he's already played quite a bit. This is spring, um, for him. I think some guys have been through multiple springs and they're still, uh, just young classification. So yeah, I, I think this group is as, as a, as a total group is ahead of the curve. Yeah, I'm with you. All right. And this, this other one comes from Carl Belgrave who says, Deshaun White, not the sexy pick, but most experienced linebacker in that room, most capable of picking up complexities of BV's defense and emerging as a D captain slash leader with consistent, if not exciting, play on the field. That's a great way of putting it, Carl. Well done, sir. Yep, I agree. And again, on, on Deshaun White, what do you want out of this this final season? Is it like a um, like a curtain call performance? We're going to go around and see the sights and wave to the fans and take it all in, or is this your last chance at you know hitting some like all conference big like whatever those goals may be? Time to decide right now. Yeah. All right. Birthday shoutouts. Happy one week birthday. To Annie Jean. Happy second birthday to Julian Kennedy Latimer. Happy third birthday to Will Fletcher. Happy sixth birthday to Logan Bill Charles Matheson. Matheson. Matthiason. Matisse. I like Matheson. I think it's Matisson. I could be wrong on that. Ugh. Logan, Bill, Charles, whatever your last name is. Happy birthday. <laughs> Happy eighth birthday to Huck Gregory. Happy, happy belated eighth birthday to Tempe Sasser. Happy 32nd birthday to Shayna. And congrats to your dancers from Raise the Bar Dance Studio in Tulsa. Wow. Happy 55th birthday to Tim, father of Cecil the Diesel Walsh. <laughs> okay. Congratulations to Caden and soon to be Brooklyn Paws. Now, you don't see many Sooners and Longhorns getting married. Huh? So this it must be true love. Congrats, guys. Congrats. Happy 65th birthday to Ed Molina. Welcome to the world. Caroline Roy, and last but certainly not least, happy 14th birthday to Kasia Brown. All right, let's get awesome. to our interview with Chris Spatola. We're talking Final Four. But first, attention business owners. Yeah, you. You need Insurek in your life. You do. Insurek is one of the country's largest insurance brokers with 30 offices throughout Oklahoma, Texas, and the Southwest. Insurek is able to customize programs by accessing the latest information from many insurance carriers. They compare and contrast coverage offerings and pricing in order to design a cost-effective, comprehensive program to meet your business's specific needs. Insurica's clients become best-in-class businesses by working with Insurica's team of advisors 
to manage risk. Purchasing insurance is only one way to protect your business. Best-in-class businesses win by avoiding a loss in the first place. If your business partners with Insurica, you'll save huge amounts of money and take back control of your total cost of risk. I'm an Insurica client, and you should be too. If your business wants to be best in class, connect with Insurica at Insurica.com. That's I-N-S-U-R-I-C-A.com. Guys, the weather is supposedly supposed to be getting warmer at some point. But it doesn't matter because it's always hard seltzer season. There's only one hard seltzer that we drink on this podcast, and that is Sonic Hard Seltzer from Coop Works. It's perfect for any occasion. We drink it in the hot tub, by the fire, and at the tailgate. You can buy 12 packs of the iconic Sonic Drive-In flavors like Cherry Limeade and Ocean Water, or you can grab a citrus variety pack or a tropical variety pack. Find it at your local grocery, convenience, and liquor stores. All right, here he is. Here's Chris Spatola. It is our pleasure to be joined by a man that will be in New Orleans for the Final Four. Uh, You've seen him all over ESPN. He's a college basketball analyst. You've heard him all over Sirius XM Radio. He is Chris Spatola. What's going on, Chris? What's up, Gabe? It's good to be with you, man. How you doing? Everything right? I'm good. I'm good probably as, you know, as a guy that works in college basketball for a living, I have to imagine that you are ecstatic about these four teams being in the final four. I mean, talk about four big time programs. This is, this is exactly what you want, right? Yeah. You know, this tournament's had a little bit of everything, man. We had the Cinderella run out out of St. Peter's, you know, we, we had some, some other upsets in the early rounds. We had the you know, I'm of the belief you've got to have your your number of power five teams advance through this tournament to keep eyeballs on the tournament as much as we love the the upsets and the the mid-majors doing their thing. And then I, I, I am of the belief that the best final fours are the final fours with the most recognizable brands in the sport. And to, to get these four programs in particular to get Duke and Carolina meeting for the first time in this tournament, let alone in the final four, is everything we could ask for. And I, I tell people all the time, Gabe, I'm in the best interest of college basketball. Like we, we are at a, I think a crossroads in our sport right now. And, you know, to get this final four, which I think are going to be two fantastic games, I, I think is, is really, really special. I love the matchup. Uh, I think it's so cool to, uh, to have that one go on in, in the final four, like you mentioned. Now I've heard some people say, and I'd love to hear your opinion. Like North Carolina, Maybe is the the team that sticks out a little bit here. Uh, the path they're hot. There's no doubt about that. They're hot, but kind of got fortunate with the path that ended up being laid in front of them. Do you see that, or do you see a team that's that's just playing really good basketball right now? I see a team that's playing great basketball right now. Uh, I think they and Duke are, are playing the two best, uh, certainly in the Final Four, and you could argue that they've played the two best in this tournament overall. Um, Look, I, I, having coached in this tournament, um, you know, w- when we won a national championship in 2010, and, and I, I can just tell you, when I was at Duke, I can just tell you that, you know, teams win in this tournament for a reason. And, you know, we always, I hear that discussion about path and, well, they had an easy path and this team was upset. But, you know, at this point in the season, first of all, any team that gets into this tournament either won their their league championship, so they are a champion entering the tournament, 
or it's a team that played well enough to get the at-large into the tournament. So these are good teams to begin with. And then as you move through the tournament, these are teams that have won an NCAA tournament game, uh, which in its of itself carries inherent pressure and external pressure and, and everything that, that, that uh, comes with it. So I've never bought into the, e- they have, they've had an easy path. I mean, I understand there are upsets along the way, but I don't think anybody can argue St. Peter's beating, um, you know, the teams that they beat uh, a Kentucky team that blew out North Carolina and a Purdue team that beat Carolina pretty good early in the season. Um, I don't think anybody would argue that that wasn't a St. Peter's team that was qualified to be in the elite eight. So I, I, I kind of downplay the path and, and would, would rather upplay, I think, how well Carolina's playing. Looking at Duke, like, like you mentioned, you were, you were part of Coach K's staff, won a national championship. I mean, you, you know what Duke is all about. Are you surprised at how this has all come together for Duke? Like, you know, you, you look at what happened in the Carolina game, in, in Coach K's last home game. You look at them, you know, getting thumped by Virginia Tech in the ACC tourney final. Like, are you surprised that they're playing as well as they are? Absolutely. Uh, this is incredibly unexpected. And to be honest with you, just speaking broadly about that matchup for a second, I, I think we're all surprised that both teams are here. You know, again, I think Carolina was playing better down the end of the regular season. But, you know, look, there were people, you know, beginning of January that didn't think Carolina was going to even make the tournament. Then they turn a corner. And then, you know, when Duke lost to Carolina in, in Kay's final game in, in Cameron, I, I think there were a lot of people that thought it was going to be an early exit from the tournament, myself included. So, uh, and look, both teams lost to Virginia Tech in the ACC tournament. So uh, there's no question this is unexpected. I, I think that Carolina game in Cameron, for the Duke-Carolina game in Cameron, I think was a foundational moment for both teams. Uh, Carolina winning that game, you're not good if you don't go in and win that game. I don't care what anybody says about the pressure on Duke. Um, It takes a lot of moxie to go in and win that game the way they did. And then in the case of Duke, I mean, you guys know, like sometimes losing is a good thing. And losing epically, which is what that was, I mean, that was embarrassing. That was wholly embarrassing for that program. Sometimes, especially a young team that hasn't, you know, they don't wear the scars of, of playing. They don't wear the scars of college basketball. Sometimes you got to see the lowest of the lows to be worthy of seeing the highest of the highs. And I think that loss, I think losing to Virginia Tech uh, in the ACC tournament, I think, you know, propelled this team to a different level. And then talent can take over. Like, I think Duke and Carolina are two of the most talented teams overall in this tournament. There was there just was never that coalescing between talent and the right mindset, the right mind frame. And I, I think the way that these teams ended the season, both in their wins and losses, I think prepared both of them to get, you know, on this run to the final four. I saw a quote last night and I think it's legit. Uh, I did see it on Twitter, so it could have been made up. But <laughs> Roy Williams at uh, North Carolina said that Brady Mannix, one of the best shooters that he's ever seen. And that is a heck of a compliment. And there's, you know, OU fans around here have seen a lot of Brady Manick and are really enjoying watching him get hot and play with confidence through this tournament. Like, what's been your impression of the way that he's played kind of down the stretch here at the end of the season? Well, you know what's funny about Coach Williams' comment there is, and I've done a lot of Big 12 games, as you guys know, over the last few years. Brady Manick was he, – he came in with the reputation as a shooter – 
And that was kind of what he was relegated to his freshman year when Trey Young was there. But Brady Young was not shooting was not what he did best. Like Brady Young, Brady Manick was a, a basketball player. Like this was a really good rebounder. He was a positional defender. He was a toughness guy. He was that intangible guy. He was, he was a good shooter, but he wasn't the shooter that he's become. Um, I, I think the system that he's played in under Hubert Davis has been beneficial to him. I think playing in a league that really didn't know exactly how to play him has been beneficial. Uh, the other thing, guys, and, and you, you both know this, like Brady Mannix sees the end of his career. I mean, he's been playing college basketball for like 20 years, but he sees the end now. And there's a desperation. There's a competitive desperation, I think, with Brady that has taken his game to another level. Shooting is a part of that, but he's an incredibly difficult matchup. Like, I think he's the key for Duke. And to, to Coach Williams' point about his shooting, in the two games against Duke this year, he has 11 threes in those two games. He's the matchup. Like, Baycott is, is a problem, and those guards, R.J. Davis and Caleb Love, have been a problem. But to me, like, Brady Manick is the guy who had the daggers in that game in Cameron. Like, like he has become a terrific player. Shooting is a part of it, but what an all-around basketball player he has been and what a pickup for Carolina in the offseason. In order for Duke to advance to the title game on Monday night, what, what are you looking for? Like, what, what does this Duke team have to accomplish? You know, what are, what are some of the keys for them to get this win uh, as we kind of head into this game? Well, the, the Bancaro matchup is big. Um, you know, look, I, I'm a believer that in, in your biggest games, your best players have to be your best players. Um, Bancaro's the most talented player in this final four. He needs to play like it. Bancaro was a problem in the first matchup in the Dean Dome against Carolina for Duke. Uh, he got Baycott into, into foul trouble. Now, to Carolina's credit, they obviously fixed that matchup in the in the second game. They they didn't, they they put, you know, some more of Leaky Black on him. Like they they did not put Baycott on him as much. Um, but I think that's that's the puzzle that Coach K's got to figure out. How can Bancaro be a real factor in this game? Um, Duke has been better defensively, and I think they're going to need to be in this game. Um, they've got to be able to hold their own on the glass. Again, a lot of that has to do with Baycott. Uh, I think finding Brady Manick, um, particularly in the half court where he was able to get loose uh, in the second half over in Cameron in the second matchup, and then you've got to be able to contain those two guards. You know, R.J. Davis and Caleb Love, both of those guys have a 30 nugget in this tournament. Um, I think if either of those guys go for those types of numbers, I think that's a problem for Duke. Duke has not turned teams over at a high rate in this tournament. Neither has Carolina. But I think whatever team is able to find a defensive stand in this game is big because both teams, as well as they're playing defensively or as improved as they are on that end, the difference maker for both teams in this tournament has been their offense and how well they're playing on that end. And so I think whoever can figure out some defensive stops in this game, I think that ends up uh, becoming a big deal because both teams are functioning again at a high level offensively. This final four is, is crazy. It's really, it's the Titans of college basketball. And just curious where you think Villanova fits into that. Now, recently success wise, I, I, they're probably the most successful of the group if you if you look at just the recent snapshot. Um, but I, as far as you know, being the blue blood or however people want to classify that, is this is it? Kind of feels like this is the 
the final four where Villanova like breaks through and there's no doubt that they're one of those big boys of college basketball. Is that, are they already there or is that kind of one of the things that they're playing for in this moment? No, I, I don't think there's any question that they are currently a blue blood in college basketball. They're a standard program, a standard setter right now in college basketball. Um, I mean, just not even just their recent success. I mean, this is a program that was a part of the original Big East. This is a now look, they've had their ups and downs, but I think what what they have done is a reestablishment of a blue blood in this sport. Um, and I think that reestablishment has has cemented them as even more in that category. Uh, they are a standard setter right now in the sport. Their consistent level of success would indicate they are a blue blood. And by the way, the figurehead of their program, Jay Wright, is is a standard setter in this in this sport. Um, I don't know who the other two would be, but he's one of the three best coaches in college basketball. Um, blue blood. Uh, there's no question about it. And, and I think, uh, again, there's look, there's one thing reaching the mountaintop. There, there's the other, especially in this day and age, that the volatility that is college basketball, to be able to establish a consistent standard of success is really, really difficult. So I, I, don't, I don't parse out new blood, blue blood, whatever, old blood. They are a blue blood in the sport. And as long as that man is the head coach, they will, they will continue to be to me. Justin Moore tears the Achilles in the Elite Eight. Feels like a big loss for that team. So who who has to replace that production from Justin Moore? Right? Is it as simple as, hey, Colin Gillespie's going to have to be special in, in this game against Kansas? Is it a collective effort? How, how do you see Villanova replacing that production without having their second leading score on the floor? I, you know, it's, it's not coming from their bench per se. Um, now, look, Caleb Daniels is going to have to – he had been coming off their bench. He's going to have to play more minutes. Um, the, the, the answer is found in guys just playing tons of minutes in this Final Four. Um, you, you're not going to be able to, in a Final Four, ask guys to do something they haven't done all season long. Um, and so it, it comes down to their, their you know, starters and then a guy like a Caleb Daniels coming off of their bench uh, into that lineup. It, it comes down to those guys playing more minutes and playing better um, to me. And, and look, there's also the fact that, that like Villanova plays a style that is conducive, I think, to plugging that type of a loss. It's a debilitating loss. I, I don't want to undersell it. Like Justin Moore's a terrific player. Um, he, he is one of their best defenders. Uh, he's outstanding offensively. Uh, he's one of the best guard rebounders in, in college basketball. He's, he's a big time loss. It's not incapacitating because of that program. I mean, that program, a, like, this is what Jay Wright does. I mean, he figures out a way to win. It's a program that is not far into losing guys. They lost Colin Gillespie last year. They lost Curtis Sumter a bunch of years ago. So they've lost guys in March. Um, but it comes down to, to those guys stepping up and then it comes down to style of play. Like, I think they've got to make this game, unfortunately for viewers, a lot like the Houston game. Like, I think it's got to be very ugly. I think it's no, got to be Chris, please. I'm sorry, no, but if you're please. Jay Wright, that's where you got to go. It's got to be really ugly, low possession, you know, take the air out of the basketball kind of a game. Um, and then I think if you're Villanova, you give yourself a shot against a very, very good offensive team. Yeah, you know, I, I got to imagine 
playing in the final four is different than anything else. Um, whether it's the, the massive venue, uh, all of the, you know, the fanfare and the buildup, it's got to be just a total one-off experience. I, what about this game, this, these set of games um, is difficult for players and coaches? And who do you think of the four is maybe best suited for, you know, with players and coaches for, for this type of scenario? And who maybe it has a chance to affect the most negatively? It's a good question. Um, you know, again, in my experience, like that's the hardest part of this week is the external stuff. I mean, there are so many media obligations. Um, you know, you got an open practice on Friday. It just like you try to plug in. I think most of the teams either left yesterday or, or are leaving today. So they're going to get there early. It affects your preparation. You do a lot of preparation at like an auxiliary gym or in your hotel ballroom. It just, so, you know, typically older teams, I, I think, are, are favored in terms of handling all of that stuff, not necessarily favored in the games, but they are favored in handling all of that stuff um, because the game is more instinctive to them. They can understand concepts more on the fly. Uh, they don't allow the external stuff and family and tickets and all of that nonsense. They don't allow that stuff to affect their preparation. Um, so I think older teams, teams that have been here in recent vintage, uh, you know, which would be a Villanova. Um, I think, you know, those programs are probably more equipped. Um, you know, the interesting dynamic about this one is Duke Carolina is going to take a lot of oxygen out of this lead up to Saturday's games. Does that benefit the winner of Kansas Villanova? I think it might, you know, I really do, especially because, like Duke is really young. Like you're, you're still talking about three freshmen in Duke's starting lineup, three freshmen uh, that are arguably their best players and, and a, and a sophomore in Mark Williams, uh, who's, who's, you know, one of their best players. Like this is a young team. How do they handle that? Now you have a guy in coach K who's here for the 13th time. So I think that obviously is beneficial, but um, you know, it just, I think it's interesting. Now you have four guys, four coaches who obviously, um, Hubert has been here as an assistant and the other three have all won national championships and have been here multiple times. So I, I think obviously you've got leaders who, who understand what's going on, but, um, but there's a lot I play. It's a really good question. Okay. Looking at Kansas, right. Ochai Abaji has been great this year. Uh, I think they've gotten some good stuff from David McCormick in the tournament. What's gotten into Remy Martin? Chris, because I, I feel like his production is really what has given Bill Self's team a boost here in the NCAA tournament. I'm, I'm surprised. You know, it, it took him a couple games when he got back to, to really start to get in the flow. But, but I think there's two things. I mean, first of all, he's talented. Like he led the Pac-12 in scoring. You know, now granted that production did not result in wins uh, or, or and he hasn't done it in the NCAA tournament. But he's a good player. So I think that's first and foremost. I think the other thing is, like, he was going to be a factor before he got hurt. I mean, he had some really some real flashes and some moments. But, like, I think sitting and watching helped him. Like, I think it was a good thing for him. I, I think he sat and he watched for a long period of time. Uh, I think he, as he was rehabbing, I think he got his body in really, really good shape. So he hit, he hit the ground running. 
Um, and, and so I think he was able to sort of acclimate a lot more quickly. Now, I will say this, guys. Ochai Abaji still has to be their best player. I think that was the difference in the second half against Miami. Like they have, they have gotten to this point and had gotten to the elite eight because of Remy, Remy Martin. He had played well. And in spite of Ochai not playing well, but in order for them to win a national championship and in order for them to win that elite eight game, Ochai needed to be their best player. He was not playing well going into that Miami game. And I think what we saw in the second half of that game is as good as Remy is Remy's got to be, He's got to be a role player. It's Ochai's show. And I think when you start from that premise, then I think Kansas is, at, is the best version of, their, of themselves. Again, it gets back to your best players have to be your best players. Uh, and so I think that's what we saw in the second half of Miami. But, you know, I, I talked to Bill Self. I had them a couple weeks before the tournament. And I said to him, what is Kansas's ceiling? Like, what, when do you win this thing? And he said, we have to see what happens with Remy. When he comes back, we'll see what happens. If he helps us, that's our ceiling. All right, prediction time. How do you see all this mess playing out? You know what? Um, I, I'm not. I I have not. I think right now. I I think Duke is probably going to win that game. But I, you know, I watched one of the, the first game of these two teams playing uh, last night, and I'm going to watch the other one later today. Uh, really, the second half. Um, Carolina is playing really well. So I, I'm going to reserve my right to, to change that, um, <laughs> by the end of the week in all seriousness, I haven't, I haven't necessarily decided that one yet. Um, I think Kansas is going to win the other one. And, and I'll tell you what, I think Kansas is going to, I think they got a real shot to cut the nets down. Um, and again, I, I think Carolina Duke are playing the best coming into the final four. I think they're the most talented teams in the final four. Uh, but I think when all is said and done, I, I think by the time you get to a Monday night, uh, I think Kansas is going to have a real shot to, to do this thing. Okay. So you and I have done radio together for multiple years. And it wasn't until a few months ago, maybe that I knew or that I was informed that coach K is your father-in-law, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which, which leads me to a million questions, but I'll, I'll just, I'll let you go with this. Cause I know you got to run Chris. What has this experience been like for your family? Like what, what has this run, especially this run to the final four, like what has it been like for you and your wife and, and the entire Shashevsky crew? It's, it's been a little bit unexpected. Um, you know, I don't think we, we, uh, or their family expected that they would be uh, going to a final four to watch uh, coach do this. Um, I will tell you personally, um, you know, my best interest is, is my wife. And I think seeing her watch her father go through this for the final time and, and be there for the 13th time in his career uh, has been really heartwarming for me. And I will say this, Gabe, like I, I left coach case staff in 2012 um, my two, one of my kids wasn't even born yet. And two of them were very young. Um, so they, they never did the whole, you know, travel during the tournament thing. They never really understood. I think what their grandfather, the, the, the magnitude of, of who their grandfather was. So one of the really cool things for me is seeing them watch Duke and watch their grandfather and travel and be a part of these cities and be a part of uh, the Sweet 16 and, and the, you know, the hotel and, and the games and the environments. 
that's what's been coolest for me. Um, you know, I'm always indebted to Coach K. He means a lot to me. But seeing my wife and, and seeing my kids uh, enjoy this the way they have has been um, the most heartwarming thing for me. Well, man, I look, I look forward to seeing you standing up when they show the family shot. You're in it every time, <laughs> and I love it. I'm like, I know that guy. But uh, appreciate you taking the time to join us, man, and have some fun in New Orleans. Thanks, boys. I appreciate it. Thanks a lot. All right. Thanks, Chris. That is, that's going to be an interesting experience for our man, Chris. It is. It makes me want Duke to win, but I don't know. Can I really cheer for Duke? I don't think I can do that. No, you can't. Okay, good. Good. But if it happens, you can experience through Chris. That's what we're going to do, right? Hey, congratulations. This is so cool. Go enjoy it. But I'll tell you, I think it's awesome that both games are great. Any of the four teams that happen to find their way into the national championship, I still think it's going to be like a great ratings national championship and still a really good matchup. I'm with you. Should be fun. All right, let's finish up with our winners and losers of the week. But first, Bishop McGinnis Catholic High School has a long tradition of educational excellence. With a 12 to 1 student to teacher ratio, no student is overlooked. Bishop McGinnis's college prep curriculum offers 22 AP courses. There are numerous clubs and organizations for students to join. And as a proud member of the OSSAA, there are 14 sports offered. If you want to provide the best possible educational and spiritual development for your children, contact Bishop McGinnis Catholic High School or Visit bmchs.org. Financial aid is available. And if you are a whiskey or bourbon drinker, stop what you're doing, head to your favorite liquor store, and buy some Balcones products. You got to grab some of Balcones Lineage Single Malt Whiskey. It was just voted one of the top 20 whiskeys in the world by Whiskey Advocate, and you'll be shocked by how affordable it is. Also, you got to snag some of Balcones Baby Blue Corn Whiskey. It's made from blue corn. That's the fancy corn. And that is why it has won more than 25 awards. Last but certainly not least, you got to buy some of Balcones Pot Still Bourbon. Its big flavors make it the perfect bourbon to drink year-round. In 2012, Balcones Single Malt won the Best in Glass competition, beating brands like Johnny Walker and McAllen, became the first American distillery to win the competition. This stuff is the real deal, Pip people. If you love great whiskey and bourbon at a great price, then Balcones products are the only way to go. The whiskey may be made in Texas, but the owners, yes, they are from Oklahoma. To find a liquor store that has it, visit balconesdistilling.com. As always, Ted, kick us off. Who do you have as your winner of the week? Oh, so beautiful. Tiger Woods making his oh. way around Augusta National. What? What is this? Is are we having visions here? Nope. That's T Woods out there playing a little bit of practice round golf at Augusta National. Could he be entering the Masters after the uh, the near amputation of a leg? I hope so. I got to tell you, um, I. I love watching golf on TV. I love the Masters. But I don't know if it's because it was, 
you know, Tiger's real big stretch or whenever he got rolling was whenever my interest in, in watching golf and playing golf really got sparked. I don't know what it is, but to me, there's nothing better than watching Tiger Woods in a major. Nothing. It is it's the best thing in golf. Tiger Woods on a Sunday when he is he's in the mix. It's the best thing in golf. I'm convinced there will just because it, it's hard to like it's hard to describe to young people like how famous, like how big of a deal Tiger Woods was, you know, in the early mid two thousands. Like it's hard to explain. You know, when he was at the height of his power. It's like he's still I mean, he's still larger than life right now, but I don't think there's ever going to be anything better in golf in our lifetime. I, I maybe his son, I don't know, but I really hope he gets he gets out there and gives it a go. Now, everyone talks, and I've never been to Augusta National. It's certainly it's on the bucket list, but. Everyone talks about the undulation of the course and how it's, you know, it's really challenging to walk the entire course, not only for the players, but the patrons. Remember, they don't call them fans, Ted. They call them patrons. So will the leg hold up? I don't know. Maybe that's what he was trying to figure out. But just the thought of him getting out there for the tournament, like it just brings a smile to my face, man. Like it it makes me so happy. And Here's the thing that I love. Um, probably anyone else, myself included, card exemption, please. <laughs> right? But, you know, in order to do it, you got to do it the same way as everyone else. I mean, that's how he sees it. And, you know, it, it's, it always gets an eye roll whenever you talk about um, – you know, the physically demanding playing golf. It's like, really? I mean, come on, they're playing golf out there. But, you know, four days, um, walking the course, hitting probably a thousand balls a day in warm up and post round work and hitting putts and working on your sand game and trying to straighten out the driver. I mean, it's, it's, it's full on. I'm not sitting here trying to say it's the most physically demanding thing ever because we all know it's not, but it's not physically nothing. And the fact that it was an issue before about him making his way around a golf course and like being able to, to go through the demands of playing a major with his back. And now not only is the back still an issue and the knee, now you've got a leg that, you know, had to go through who knows what surgical repair, uh, all kinds of rehab and stuff. Like, I don't know. I don't know the full story as to what all went on there, but you just add that to the mix. It, it's not his only injury. So I just, I hope he's able to do it because it'd be awesome. And even if he's out there just to make his way around and, you know, hope, hopefully make it to where he can play on the weekend. Every single one of us are going to be wondering, could he do it? I could, he make something special happen. That's, that's like the tiger woods stigma, man. It, it, you always feel like something special could happen at any moment. 
Yeah, and I, I will say this. You, you mentioned kind of all the physical issues. You've got all that in one hand, but then what gives you hope in the other is that dude's nuts. Like it's, he, he's, he's crazy enough to do it yes. right? in, in the best way. I mean, that yes. is a compliment and man, it would be fun to see him get out there. I just, I don't know. Like he's, he's got to just have a tremendous amount of pride, right? I mean, you're, you're the best golfer ever. If, if you know, it's not going to go well, like, do you go out there and do you do it? You know, just, uh, you know what I mean? That like, I I'm sure there's part of him going, okay, I don't want to get out there. Cause you have to imagine it. It, it causes Tiger Woods physical and mental pain, pain to play bad golf, right. With how much he's put into it and coming back from this injury and all the stuff he's gone through. Like, I just don't know if he's willing to get out there and be like, okay, yeah, I'm going to suck, but let's do this. I, I just don't know. One of the interesting things is he is, he's always uh, very critical of like where he is in his, his golf game. He's always working on something and he's still trying to figure something out and haven't been doing this. Well, I haven't been doing that. Well, all those things he's got to work on, but, I guess he was recently asked about like, like where he stands. And apparently he said that his short game and his putting is as good as it's ever been. So for him to say that is like kind of a, a strange moment. So I don't know. It's fascinating to, to see what may occur. I I'm, I'm kind of with you though. I, I don't want him to see, I don't want to watch him go out there and like labor around the course and shoot couple of 81s you know could you imagine how awesome it would be to labor around and shoot 81 on a on a <laughs> professional on a major course right not <laughs> not the local you take, take my back lord if it means i go out there and shoot 81 consistently <laughs> yeah can you imagine sh shooting 81 at Augusta National when it's set up for the the Masters and just being so pissed off at yourself? But just that's devastated. Level. Those guys are amazing. Yeah. All right. Who do you have as your loser of the week? OU, OU fans. Ah, this was a tough one. Lebius Overton. He was the 23 five-star defensive lineman reclassified to the 22 class. Oklahoma was one of his, his uh, top destinations that in, we thought we were going to have a really good chance at it. He was scheduled to take an official visit the day of the spring game or the weekend of the spring game. And it sounds like after a visit to Texas A and M, Lebius Overton is calling off the rest of his trips and going to be making an announcement as to his destination I believe on Friday and since it's right after the Texas A&M visit stands to reason that Texas A&M is going to win out on this thing yeah so he was he was just at A&M and earlier in March he visited Georgia and Oregon but yeah it seems like all signs point to him going to Texas A&M, which would be another addition to 
the number one recruiting class in the history of recruiting classes that Jimbo Fisher just inked there at A&M. Now, no, 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 not $30 million. They would never, they would never, but just uh, another another five-star for the Aggies that's looking like, that sucks. Yeah. His dad went to OU. Come on, Milton. Come on, man. Here's the thing. I, I would no doubt love to have a five-star defensive lineman. I think Overton, um, from everything, I, I don't know a whole lot about like how good he is, but a lot of people think very highly of him, and, and he's probably going to make someone better. But I still believe totally, 100%, firmly, it ain't going to matter. It ain't going to matter. We are everything that needs to be done, every detail that needs to be poured over, all of those things are happening right now at OU. And they're going to get great play at defensive line. It's, it's going to be a work in progress, but they're going to get the right guys in, and those guys are going to go win a championship. I don't know who exactly they are, but like Levius Overton going to Texas A&M, in my opinion, and this is nothing like talking about his skill level or anything, it's not going to have an impact on where OU's going. And you never know. He could he could o- go to A&M, collect his signing bonus, and then transfer to OU here in a couple years. You know? You never know. A couple years, a couple weeks. That's true. The wild, wild west of college <laughs> yeah. football, baby. We'll Let's see you go. at training camp, uh, Overton. Yeah, we'll see you, Levia. So, come on. Yeah, just take your collector money and let's uh, – now I'm – I'm joking about the collecting the money thing. Wish that young man the best, but oh, you would have been a better choice. That's all I'm saying. All right, for my winner of the week, thought about going with Chris Rock. Will Smith put everything he could into that slap, and Chris Rock was unfazed. He kept doing his thing, clear like. He had to just be shocked. Had to be like, what the hell? That really just happened? And he just kept it moving. He kept it moving, presented his award, handled it about as well as you could handle it. Just took took an open... uh, By the way, who slaps another man? What are we doing, Will Smith? What are we doing? I, I I don't know, man. That is... I still can't fully grasp the whole thing. And I hear a bunch of people... Well, if I was Chris Rock and I got slapped, I would have done this. He's working. He's presenting an award. He's got lines up on a on a screen somewhere that he's delivering. I he's he's getting paid to like if something like that happens, you don't even it takes you like probably an hour to process like what just happened. Well, it so, took Will Smith a little longer than an hour because then he went up and his acceptance speech was something. All you needed to know about his acceptance speech was the look on Venus Williams' face, where she was just like, "Oh my gosh!" Oh, it was, it was. But shout out to Chris Rock, and I believe Wednesday night is the first show uh, for his stand-up comedy tour that he is embarking on. I imagine that's going to be really funny, <laughs> like. Mm. 
The dude had his hands behind his back and just walked up there and full force slapped him. What was yeah. that? Hey, the timing is almost too good, isn't it? Right? To uh, to really capitalize off of that moment. Come on, Gabe. You know I love a good com- conspiracy theory. You Come do, on. but I, if Will Smith – I thought it was real the whole time because – in. I was watching it with my wife, my sisters-in-law, uh, my mother-in-law and my brother-in-law. And we were watching it. They were like, Oh, that had to be like, was that fake? Like what just happened? I was like, no, no, no. You do not mess with the audio on a broadcast. This important. Like you do not do that. Like that is, that is the number one no, no of producing and directing something of this magnitude. Like something's going on. Right. <laughs> and then yeah. they showed like, you couldn't hear him, but anyone that could read lips saw what Will Smith said, and I was like, "Oh boy, this is this is juicy." Hey, with all the mentions they're getting, though, um, nobody was really watching, but they're capitalizing on it now. Like uh, they're going to start. Say, if we could create some type of drama like this every time, the ratings are going to continue to climb. Let's go. Let's work this. That maybe that's what they need to do, <laughs> but. Yeah, we'll see what ends up happening to Will Smith. The whole, like, he just slapped a dude and then you hand him his Oscar and, like... They said they... Asked him to leave and he said no? He refused. What do you mean he refused? Just kick him out. You have the security drag his ass out of there. (laughs) Mr. Smith refused. Well, then make him unrefuse. (laughs) Right. You're not supposed to be asking him. You're supposed to be telling him. And I will say this. There, there are a lot of different groups in this country that I, that I don't want to piss off. Right. I, I, I think all of the comedians on planet earth, like the last group I would want to upset because it's, I don't know. It just feels like, people that are really, really good at writing jokes for a living and attacking people with said jokes. I just, I wouldn't want to hurt, like go after one of the icons of their profession. I, I don't know. It just, it seems, seems like a bad idea. It does. And you know, Chris rock, I'm sure he's done a ton of comedy shows in, you know, some, Far sketchier places than the stage of the Oscars. I, when a heckler or someone upset from the audience starts to make their way up there, I mean, you would think at some places you get nervous, right? But somehow the security at the Looney Bin in Oklahoma City is better than the security at the Oscars. Like, he was probably thinking, okay, he's mad, but this is the Oscars. Surely he's not going to come up here and slap me. If you were doing that set somewhere else, you may be really worried about what's about to happen, but he's like, ah, this is the Oscars. Nothing bad. Whack. <laughs> also, he's probably like, I've known Will Smith for 30 years. Right. <laughs> Just like, wow. there's no way. Oh, well, that was, that was one of the most shocking pop culture events of my lifetime where I was sitting there going like the most well-liked man in Hollywood just went up there and slapped one of the most famous comedians on the planet. It was, 
It was stunning. Yeah. I'll tell you what's interesting because I, I'm, I'm torn because I, I think what Will Smith did is totally wrong. Absolutely, do not condone that at all. But at the same time, I do recognize that a lot of things currently happening could be fixed if you if you were always under threat of being slapped whenever you said or did something stupid, right? I mean, there's no doubt, but that's just it's kind of not how the country works. Like, I know, I know it. Yeah, I. The joke wasn't even that good. No. It was, it, and the joke wasn't offensive enough. It wasn't like, "Hey, I'm gonna go slap you on stage." Offensive, like it was. the The reaction was, and, and I know that Will Smith and Jada Pinkett Smith have a, a whole lot going on with their relationship, with how that whole thing works. But it was not. It was not a. I'm gonna go slap this guy in the face. Offensive. It just wasn't. It was. It was. It was a dramatic reaction. Here's the thing. You think I should start slapping every person I hear a bald joke from? No. Right? It's not that big of a deal. It's not. It you can't you can't allow one person to make that big of an issue out of out of something that a bunch of people deal with. I mean, especially whenever a joke is being delivered by a comedian I on stage, on television, but I, I mean, there's a lot of people that, that get far worse jokes than that thrown at them in those type of settings. You heard it here first, people. You make, it, you make any more ball jokes to Ted, he's going to come slap your ass. I, the precedent has been set. It's okay to slap people over bald jokes. I didn't even think about how this could be, how that could have been a situ, a, kind of a sensitive situation for you. I that hadn't even crossed my mind. That's because you know I don't see hair, Ted. I just see you, man, and you you look great, bald buddy. Well, yeah, you don't see hair because there's none there to see. <laughs> so, oh wait, hey, I you, got bald joke. Slap myself. Slapped. He, he did it, people. He slapped himself. All right. I also thought about going with. Everyone that complained about Josh Allen and the Bills not getting the ball in overtime against the Chiefs in the playoffs because the NFL is changing the overtime rule in the playoffs. Each team, they're going to get the ball. So even if the team that gets the ball scores first, if they score a touchdown, the other team gets a chance. Uh, we'll see if that leads to different strategy of you know, you know deferring, letting the other team get the ball first so you know what you got to get. I would assume that is what will happen with that whole situation, but who knows? But it seems like everyone's – yeah, this eliminates a lot of the bitching, right? Everyone's getting a possession, so no more complaining. Now it's it's one less thing that people can complain about, I suppose. Yeah, that's true. Um, is there any other sport that has changed its overtime rules at two different levels more than NFL and college. Isn't it's hard it to keep insane? up with. <laughs> it really is hard to keep up with. Last year during the Texas game, uh, 
or I, I, I guess it was the, it was the previous year during the Texas game. I was like, I was, I can't remember what, the, how when, many is it? Do we have to start going for two? When do they go for two again? It's, it's the third overtime, right? Yeah. 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 Oh, okay. okay. Oh man. Funny stuff. Yeah. All right. But my winner of the week, and this one may be a little controversial, Eric church. So love me some Eric church, big fan of his music, but he has angered his fan base. Ted, he canceled a show on Saturday in San Antonio. So, okay. You're thinking, Hey, family emergency, maybe he's sick. Maybe something, you know, is wrong with the kid like that. Nope. He wants to go to the final four. He's, he's a big North Carolina fan canceled a concert because he said, I want to go watch Duke and Carolina play in the final four. And he said, it's a sports enthusiast's dream. I mean, I guess this is a power move. If I've ever seen one from a musician, the guy is, I'll, I'll give him credit. The guy's living life. He, the way that he wants to live it, but he had to have known that this would piss so many people off. And he still did it. He was like, you know what? I'm doing it. And I kind of respect the hell out of it. I'm not going to lie. I, it would suck if I had a ticket to that concert. I'd be pissed. But kind of kind of awesome because I feel like Eric Church and I are the same. Like, our, our lives revolve around sports. <laughs> so, I, I see both sides of it, but I think, I think I'm kind of leaning Eric Church's way on this one. Well, if you can do it, you can do it. Um, it's weird. Like not even going to reschedule it, not even going to try and move it a day or two. Straight or canceled. Done. Uh, that's interesting. I bet there's a lot of mad people. Oh, but there are. I, I'm trying to think of, you know, because if you if you, he's got some like serious super fans that go all over the place watching him perform and stuff. Big fan base. Um, I I don't know. I guess I don't really know how I feel about it. If he's got the ability to just say no, I cancel. I'm done. I'm going to the game. Did I guess that's. That's his his right to do that, but I, I feel like the anger is going to fade really quickly. I I just think he, he's got it. So all the tickets get refunded, right? But there's more to it than that. So this is where I would like to personally challenge Eric Church, like because you you refund the tickets automatically. That's easy. But you got to got to think about all the people that were supposed to work that concert. Yep. Concessions, security, like people a lot of the times people well, those are, are a big draw. I mean, there's a reason that cities pay in partnership with um you know, NBA teams or whoever for arenas because they get proceeds and this generates a lot of economic activity in these areas when people come into town i mean that's a there's a reason why that that model exists because there's a bunch of people coming into san antonio hang out stay in hotels go to restaurants and bars to go see that concert 
that's gone too. Yeah, and let's not forget people that are coming from out of town. Flights, flights ain't cheap right now. Hotel rooms, like sir. So there's some there's some sunk cost in this, especially like a lot of that stuff. Remember, this is what five days before the concert. I mean, so all I'm saying is, I I don't know how we would do it, but like try to make that right, man. Try to make it right. Listen, I I love that you love sports. I love that. And he kind of made the comparison. He's like, you guys coming to see my show and like being in the crowd for my show is how I feel going to a Carolina game. I was like, dude, this is not helping your, <laughs> this comparison's not, they're still going to be mad, but I just, I, I feel like I love it. Cause it's, it's because it's a good reminder of how much sports means to, to people, but also like make it right for those people you kind of just screwed over, you know? Yeah. It's going to be expensive. <laughs> it's going to be expensive. Oh uh, man. Yeah. I don't know. That's wild, dude. Yeah. Uh, we'll see what happens. I, I, I still think that the fans and the people that are mad, like it's going to be a small percentage of his fan base. And I feel like a lot of people will get over it fairly quickly. I'm with you. I could but be still. wrong about that, though. Yeah. <laughs> we, we we didn't have tickets and a flight booked and a hotel booked for that show. So we'll, we'll see. All right, for my loser of the week, thought about going with the Los Angeles Lakers with no LeBron, <laughs> no Anthony Davis. They gave up 82 points and a half and got smacked by Luka Doncic and the Dallas Mavericks, which means that currently the Lakers would not be in the play-in for the NBA playoffs. Hmm. I wonder, do you think, do you think they even want to make the playoffs? No. I don't think so either. I feel like if you ask LeBron right now with the way this season has gone, if he wants to be in the playoffs, he's probably like, no. No, early vacation. Let's go. I I bet Russell Westbrook really misses Oklahoma City. Mm. Not been pretty. We we appreciated and loved you, Russ. We still do. Man, it just it has not gone well for our guy in LA. Just Brutal. hasn't hasn't gone well. But my loser of the week, this one hurts too. Feel like I've done them a couple times here in the last month, in the last couple months. Baker Mayfield. So things haven't gotten any better for the beloved Sooner. Baker, the guy just wants to get traded, right? He just wants to get traded so he can go and start and prove to everyone the the type of player he is, so that he can get, you know, he can win some games and get a fat second contract, right? That's all he wants to do. Well. On Monday, Kevin Stefanski essentially said, hey, they want to trade Baker as soon as possible. I think it was like, hey, they want the they want to handle the situation. Well, that's good. But then on Tuesday, Roger Goodell comes out and says that the NFL is still investigating the Deshaun Watson situation. He said there's no timetable for that investigation to conclude, but made it very clear that Watson still could be disciplined 
under the league's personal conduct policy. And even though the Browns signed Jacoby Brissett to be their backup, Browns general manager Andrew Barry said they really don't have a specific timetable for their quarterback room. And they'll see what happens over the next weeks or months. And then Josina Anderson puts a tweet out there that said, while anything can happen, my understanding is the Browns currently plan a patient approach with Baker Mayfield's situation. It's also entirely possible they enter the regular season with Mayfield still on the roster and in position to suit up pending Deshaun Watson's playing status. What? Let Baker Mayfield free, Cleveland. Trade him. Now they're not going to do anything, what, suboptimal is probably the best way to put it, but trade the guy, man. Stop making him suffer. Um, Whoever told Josina Anderson that, if that was the GM, Andrew Barry, he's drunk. Um. Bayfer, Baker Mayfield is not suiting up for the Browns next season and playing. That is not happening. Zero chance that happens. Zero chance. What they're trying to do is, since they totally crushed and destroyed and shredded any ounce of uh, trade value that Baker Mayfield had, They're trying to reestablish a little bit by acting as if, well, we don't necessarily need to trade him now. He could still play for us next year. Trying to push some teams into saying, okay, well, if we're going to do this thing, we need to offer up a little bit more because, you know, they may actually have him hanging around because like Goodell Goodell's not going to issue any, any statement on whether or not he's going to suspend Deshaun Watson until the civil cases are cleared up. If the civil cases aren't cleared and he goes in and suspends Deshaun Watson, that's like leverage for the, the plaintiff in that civil case, right? To say that, well, the NFL clearly says that he did something wrong here. So he's not going to make any type of preemptive action until the civil case has been decided when it's decided, then something could happen. And who knows when that's going to take place. So, right. There's a lot of time here for the Browns. And if they're wanting to trade him, like giving the appearance that you may keep him around is the only way to really speed it up. If there's any way at all to do it. Yeah. Like that probably doesn't actually generate anything, but that's my feeling on what they're trying to do. All all I want for Baker Mayfield is for him to get to his new home for OTAs, right? And and I know some people think OTAs they, they don't matter and you know they're they're glorified walkthroughs, whatever. It's like if if you're Baker and you're trying to get a massive second contract, like every practice matters in my mind. He needs to get there, start developing relationships with his new teammates, wherever that's going to be, start working with his receivers. You know, needs to be with that training staff, developing a plan for that shoulder, like all of these things, like all this stuff takes place 
during that OTAs period. And I, I just want the guy to get to his new home because yep. right now he's, he's a, he's a man with no home. And it just, it, it I, I just want him to be set up for success this next season because it's, it's a critical season for his career. So that's why I saw this stuff. And I'm just like, damn man, everything that could go wrong for him has gone wrong for him. Like in the last six months, you know, with his health, now you got the Watson thing and all of this, like the Browns not even looping him in on it. Like, it's just, I don't know, but I just want the guy to get one break <laughs> and him getting to a new organization as soon as possible would be, would be the best thing for his career. So hopefully, hopefully he gets dealt at the latest, like, you know, draft night or something like that. That's what I was going to say. I think he's, I think he's a, a draft type of trade like I think that's that's whenever the action's going to start start to move there and you know who knows teams that have their eye on taking a quarterback somewhere in the first or second round maybe if they're not able to then you may start to see some action move around Baker Mayfield yep on that note episode 201 in the books we'll have a new podcast that'll drop Sunday night Monday morning ish just a reminder, you can hear Teddy from 3 to 6 on 94.7 The Ref. You can hear me from 3 to 5 on SiriusXM Big 12 Radio, Channel 375. Hope you all have a great rest of your week. Have a fantastic weekend. And until next time, we appreciate you all for listening. Do what you always do, Oklahoma. Take care of each other. Just one more time